Recording in progress. All right. Good evening, everybody. So, the topic for tonight is really about understanding how the Ramban deals, perhaps more generally, about when his pshat doesn't exactly cohere well with how he wants the Avais to come out. Does he take the approach of using his pshat or not? So the background is, of course, that we know in Pashas Lech Lecha, we saw three examples of the Ramban effectively saying that his pshat makes Avram or Sarah or both look like they sinned, look like they behaved inappropriately, and him running with that to the point that the Ramban says that even without basis in Chazal, on his own, he takes his pshat and he goes all the way running with his pshat. But it's not clear, and in fact, I would say it's decidedly not the approach of the Ramban to do that typically. Very often the Ramban does not do that. Very often the Ramban does not go in the route that he did in the beginning of Parshish Lech Lecha, where he adduces and finds inappropriate behavior on the part of the Avais or the Imais, and uses that, even to the degree it's against Chazal. Typically he does, I think, the opposite. So perhaps we can come up, I'm not sure that we can, perhaps we can come up with an idea <coughs> that can sort of explain <clears throat> in a more fundamental way why the Ramban is doing this. So again, just to reiterate, what were the examples that the Ramban gave? What were the examples of where he found sins on the part of the Avais or the Imois? So the first was that during the time of the Rav, during the time of the famine, that Avram went down to Mitzrayim and didn't have trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The second was when he essentially put Sarah up for dangerous situation um, by saying that she was his sister. Um, and the third is Sarah and Avram mistreating Hagar. I heard from both my son, who quoted his Rebbe in Yeshiva, as well as uh, somebody who was listening to one of uh, to that class that we did in Parshish Lechacha, who commented to me independently that this Ramban has to be a forgery, it has to be a Ramban that was written by a student, because the Ramban would never say that the Avais or the Imois did a sin without there being a Chazal to rely on. So one of the people said that they heard this from the Rosh Hashiva, who heard it from Moshe Feinstein in a Chumash year, and... My son's Rebbe didn't quote from any specific person. He said it has to be that the Rabban never said it. But I'm going to just take the Rabban and his words and essentially say that those Rambans don't necessarily fit what we find often other times in Chumash, including in this week's parasha, which is that the Rabban goes out of his way sometimes, seemingly, to make the Pshat cohere with a rosier picture of the others. So, for the background for Pasha's Toldos, that was part one. Part two, I would suggest, is that when we look at this week's Pasha, it's very, very obvious as a matter of pshat that Yitzchak looks like he's being manipulated, that he's being taken advantage of, whether it's by the Pelishtim, Avimelech, whether it's by Rivka. He just seems to not have a very good handle over what's going on in his family. Um, and they seem, whether it's his family or his business, seems to sort of um, run circles around him. And they manipulate him to do as they as they please. Again, many examples uh, in terms of the wells being pushed out, um, in terms of 
Rivka ensuring that the that the brachas and the whole scheme went to Yaakov instead of Esav. Rivka ensuring that Yaakov goes to get married to a girl instead of uh, Yitzchak coming up with the idea on his own. Um, he's manipulated into uh, doing what other protagonists want in a given situation, or so it seems. So, I want to start out with a very interesting Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra makes a suggestion. The Ibn Ezra says that Yitzchak was not as successful as Avram. According to the Ibn Ezra, it's not that we're going to deny what the Torah actually says. The Torah says that he was successful. The Torah says that Yitzchak was very great. Avimelech said, Go away from us, you became very successful. But according to the Ibn Ezra, Yitzchak's life, here we're specifically talking about his financial life, was a series of ups and downs. At times in his life he was very successful, and at times in his life he was very poor, unsuccessful, in a material way. The Ibn Ezra says this, I think, because of the fact that he's wondering why is it that, for example, Esav is willing to sell his Bechaira for nothing. Why is there simply a dearth of food available in the house? Why, why is there a problem? Esav should just go to the pantry and take food. Why does he need Yaakov's lentil soup? Why is it so important that he eat right now or he's going to die? If you're really going to die and there's a ton of food available because you're very wealthy, eat some of the other food. Why are you taking that soup and making this deal? The Ibn Ezra suggests that Yitzchak had a series of financial ups and downs in his life. Yes, he inherited a significant amount, presumably from Avram, but he wasn't able to keep it. And, as a result, at the time of the Bechera uh, sale, Yitzchak was on a downturn. And there simply wasn't enough food to go on, to go around. And therefore, when Esav came back, there wasn't anything available. The Ibn Ezra continues, Yes, it's true that when he lived by Avimelech, he became successful again, and that's why they pushed him away. But at the end of his life, especially perhaps in part because of his blindness, he was again on the downturn. Yitzchak was again very poor. And that's why he needs Esav to go out and hunt for him, to get him some food. He needs Esav to go out and hunt for him, because, says the Ibn Ezra, why else would he be eating this? Why else would he be asking Esav to go hunt for him? The only reason to do it is because he literally needs food. This is the opinion of the Ibn Ezra. And according to the Ibn Ezra, Yitzchak loves Esav precisely because of the fact that Esav puts himself in harm's way to go out to the wild to hunt food in order to bring it back for Yitzchak, because Yitzchak is in fact hungry. And yes, the Ibn Ezra acknowledges he had a few sheep. Obviously that's what they had in order to have whatever the wool provided, and milk and cheese or whatever, but it was relatively limited. Their assets were very minimal. And another point that the Ibn Ezra makes is, if you look, the Pasuk says that Rivka took the... He took the, the very desired clothing of Esav that were in the house. Why does Yaakov have to wear Esav's tuxedo? Why can't he wear his own when he's going to attempt to convince Dad to give him the brachas? Says again the Ibn Ezra, because Yaakov simply didn't have the same the suit of clothes that was necessary. Only Esav had it. They had hand-me-downs. So, according to the Ibn Ezra, Yitzchak was simply poor at that stage of his life when they were dealing with the Misa of the Brachas. Um, a last proof that the Ibn Ezra gives is that if you look, when 
Rivka is sending and Yitzhak are sending Yaakov to Lavan, he doesn't get an entourage. You recall that when Avram sent his servant to go find a wife for Yitzchak, he sent him with Asar Gemalim, Gemalim Adonai, V'chol Tuv He had a ton of things. But Ibn Ezra points out that Yaakov was given nothing. Presumably, says the Ibn Ezra, because there was nothing to give. The house was empty, the cupboard was bare. That is the opinion of the Ibn Ezra. And the Ibn Ezra continues, that's why when Yaakov in Parshas Vayetze is talking about his deal, as it were, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he says that if I come, then Hashem is going to be for me, for Elikim, for a God. But what are the terms of that? The terms are that, are that they're going to have Lechem, Lechel, Begelubash. And I'm going to have what to eat and what to wear. Why is Yaakov having such a minimal requirement? You're going to make HaKadosh Baruch your God if you have enough food to eat and enough clothing to wear? Isn't that like basics? Yes, says the Ibn Ezra. But basics, when someone doesn't have them, are luxuries. So for Yaakov, that was enough. Make a deal with HaKadosh Baruch that he'll be your God, provided that you have the basics taken care of. Namely... Food and clothing. So, Ibn Ezra concludes his statement by saying that it's wrong to think that a tzaddik must be blessed with shtei shulchanis. That only a righteous person, will only a truly righteous person will, will be blessed not only with spirituality, but also with material wealth. He says it's not true. We don't know why God does what he does. The fact that Yitzchak was not blessed with wealth is not something we should have a question about. What Hashem does is secretive and he concludes and we don't know why HaKadosh Baruch Hu made Yitzchak blind. There must be some sightedness about it. That's the approach of the Ibn Ezra. Now, of course, I would suggest to you that this is a bad look. To say that Yitzchak you know, um, was manipulated by his wife is one thing. But to say he couldn't be, at least she's one of the Imayas, maybe she was relying on Ruch HaKadosh, but, or an actual sort of prophetic inspired uh, um, message that she received. But to say that Yitzchak couldn't, you know, husband the inheritance that he received, that he couldn't take care of the animals that he had adequately, just seems to be, just seems to be um, a very negative thing to say by Yitzhak Avinu. After all, you know, what they say sometimes about a doctor, a physician, do no harm. So Yitzhak took over a big fortune, you know, just invest in treasuries. Don't do anything grandiose. Don't make any big deals about anything. Just take what you have and let it grow, compound the interest, and don't do anything more. Not that complicated, right? So says the Ramban, that Rabbi Avram, he says, is mishtabish ma'id. He says he's totally, totally wrong. The Ibn Ezra is totally incorrect in his approach here. He is... Um, Grasping at straws. Says the Ramban, Yitzchak Avinu was just as financially successful as Avram. According to the Ramban, maybe he didn't have cash. The Ramban points out that by Yitzchak it doesn't mention Kesav Azov, but by Avram it did. So it was a barter economy, or maybe you know he was he was asset rich and cash poor. Maybe he was or was not able to get leverage on the assets that he had, but he had assets. The Ramban is very careful to re- make this very, very clear. Says the Ramban, Yitzchak was not a financial failure, not at any point in his life. And <clears throat> to the Ramban's credit, 
he could have taken the approach that the Radak and others take, which is to say that when it came time to sell the Bechora, there are some who say that the actual sale is not included in the Chumash. That is, they had some contract drawn up for whatever was an agreed-upon price, let's say $1,000. And that was taken care of outside the text. And the Lechem and the Ziradashim, that's like the closing dinner. That's when they're sitting down to celebrate the successful closing of their transaction. The Ramban says, I don't like that. That's not, that's not the simple way to read the text. The simple way to read the text is in the way that it makes Yaakov perhaps not look so savory. So take advantage of your brother who's starving by making him pay for something that you desire uh, for, for what's uh, you know, a very cheap commodity. A pottage of lentils doesn't seem to be very valuable relative to the Bechayra. So therefore, says the Ramban, um, I, even though I don't like that shot, that they had a separate deal outside of the text, um, he does bring it down. He says, I don't like that. He says, the pshat is, Gitzch, uh, sorry, Yaakov purchased the Bechora with the lentil soup. So he does say that, even if it perhaps makes Yaakov not look 100% the most yashristic or the easiest to get on with, given that he took seeming advantage of his brother in a difficult situation. But, says the Ramban, Esav was not hungry and in desperate need of lentil soup because of the fact that Yitzchak couldn't provide soup at the, at, in the kitchen. He said, that's 100% wrong. And he goes through each one of the rayas of the Ibn Ezra and says how it's wrong. Each one of the rayas of the Ibn Ezra, according to the Ramban, are wrong. And for example, he says the following. He says, Esav didn't want the Bechaira. Period. It wasn't simply because of the fact that he was hungry. He didn't value it. As Rashi pointed out, he didn't value it at all. So that's number one. Number two, the Rambam points out that the Bechaira doesn't have much meaning in the pre-Sinaitic days because of the fact that it didn't provide Pishnayim. Before Mantara, it didn't provide Pishnayim. Rather, it was just a simply a way of saying, the Bukhar is the Mamala Mokim of the Father. Maybe they gave a little bit extra, but it wasn't much. And then he says something, which I think we can relate to today with the modern uh, restaurant scene. He says, eating game is the highlight of the kings. He says that Ibn Ezra has it absolutely backwards. Ibn Ezra is saying that Yaakov, I'm sorry, that a- that Yitzchak is sending Esau to go out hunting for him is a sign, is a telltale sign of of being impoverished, of, of poverty. He says that's actually not correct. He says the, the wealthiest people enjoy the gamiest meat. They go out and they hunt and they enjoy it. And they enjoy the hunt and they enjoy the food. And presumably that, you know, that hobby um, is not a, a, a new one to the times of the Spain of the Ramban, but it's an old one, he's saying. It was exactly that same thing in those days. Perhaps we'll get to, perhaps not. The, there is a comment from one of the Rishonim that suggests that when Esav um, was coming to meet Yaakov with 400 men, in Paris Vayishlach, so the the Pasik says that Yaakov gave him a present, He gave him a whole variety of things. The text enumerates it. So one of the comments from one of the Rishonim is what does it mean something that comes to the hand? So it's the Pasha Pshad is he gave him camels and menikas and he gave him uh, you know the sheep and the goats and all that. But this comment, I forget which Rishon or Ephraim or something, it was one of these um, fascinating comments that he says that Minhabbiyad is a separate present and it is a falcon. A falcon. Why a falcon? 
because they practiced the the art, the, which is it's known as the game of the kings. It's when they use a a bird, a trained bird, to go hunting for them, falconry, and it's still practiced today in the in the Middle East. You can actually Google a Middle East private plane uh, with falcons or something. You'll see a picture where, like you know, these Arab sheikhs, you know, um, charter a private plane for their birds. And this is a very old sport, known as the sport of the kings. So it's it certainly doesn't boggle the mind that if in the time of the Rishonim they did that and they thought that, that perhaps it goes back pretty far. Perhaps it goes back, in fact, to the times of the Avais. says the Ramban in relation to eating game, that that's exactly what it is. Hunting is a sport of kings and uh, the well-heeled. And uh, that's the reason that Yitzchak appreciates this kind of food. It's not a sign of poverty, to the contrary. And then the, uh, the Rabbi continues, and he says that, in fact, it's not just that he likes the game. Maybe that's one aspect, but there's another aspect of it, that when you have somebody go and prepare you food, you become more directly connected to them. You appreciate them more, and it makes you sort of more... Uh, spiritually or soulfully tied to them. And therefore, probably Yitzchak felt, says the Ramban, that he would be able to then, since he would be more connected, be able to bless him appropriately. And then he says, the fact that um, the fact that Yaakov took specific clothing from Esau is not because that Yaakov couldn't afford a tuxedo of his own. It certainly could. But they were trying to set up an appropriate ruse, an appropriate scheme, that would be able to fool Esav, uh, that would be able to convince Yitzchak that this is Esav. So what better way to do that than with the appropriate clothing that would smell like the field, that would have the indicia that Yitzchak, who being blind, was relying more in the sense of smell and his hearing, that he would be able to actually be fooled by it. So contrary to the Ibn Ezra, who finds that Yaakov's wardrobe is missing things because they're so poor. According to the way the Ramban is, the wardrobe is not missing anything. It's missing these kinds of clothes because that's not what Yaakov does. He's not a hunter. He sits by tents. So he needs to borrow that clothing in order to appropriately disguise himself as Esau. And then at the end of the parsha, says the Ramban, the fact that Rivka and Yitzchak didn't give him much in the way of possessions. The Rabban says, because remember, this is sort of somewhat of a rush, right? Esav is walking around saying to himself, but it's obviously being leaked to the press, then Yikruvu Yimei Evel Avi Vahargas Yaakov Achi, when my dad dies, I'm going to kill Yaakov. You know, this is not maybe absolutely uh, urgent in the sense that he had to leave that second. But it was somewhat urgent. Esau was very upset. And he certainly didn't want to potentially make him so angry that he would blow a gasket and then try to go after Yaakov even while, even while Yitzchak was still alive. So says the Ramban, if you're going to give him a whole entourage to go to Lavan's house in style, the same way the servants of Avram went, all Esau is going to do is get angrier. He's already lost the Bechaira. He's lost now the Brachas. <coughs> this is going to be too much for Esav to bear. So therefore, they don't give him the entourage. But it's not because they couldn't afford it. Um, and then he concludes, and he says that the blindness that uh, Hashem gave to, to Yitzchak was simply a, a situation that, um, you know, he got old and Many times, when people get old, they lose various different senses, and that's what happened here. And there's nothing more to, to sort of glean from that. So what, I, what I'm trying to show from here is that I think it will be fair to say that the Ramban could not imagine that what the Ibn Ezra was saying is correct, that Yitzchak was a failure financially, that he couldn't provide for his family, despite having inherited such a fortune from his father, uh, 
It seems it seems impossible. So says the Ramban, even though we acknowledge that Yitzchak perhaps didn't have as much liquidity available as Avram, it doesn't mention any gold and silver, but nevertheless he still had assets and there was no hint of penury in the family, no hint of poverty in the family. The Haraya, they had flocks, they had flocks, not just by the time of Gerar, they had flocks even in their own house at the end of his life where um, Yitzhak, uh, where I'm sorry, where Rivka told Yaakov to go get the goats from. Now, there's the next point I wanted to focus on in the Parsha, also in relation to this idea of making the Avais look bad, but specifically focusing uh, on Yitzhak. So we know that there is many strands within Chazal, we find it in Gemars, we find it in Midrashim, that suggest that the Avais kept Kol Kula. Some 10 years ago now, probably more, there was a video done. You can find it on YouTube. I think it was called Krum as a Bagel. Essentially, in this video, it deals with this week's Parsha. And it deals with this week's Parsha by saying that when Esav came home, Esav said, Esav asked for the lentil soup. And if you look what Yaakov actually gave him, Yaakov actually gave him lechem when is radashim vayechal vayesh vayokom vayelach vayivez Esav's habachero. Yaakov gave Esav bread and lentils, not just lentils. Why? So in this video, they make the joke. The whole thing is a is a comic. Uh, it's it's meant to be funny. And it is quite funny. But it gets at a very, very important point. What the video was poking light at was this idea of the others keeping Kala Torah Kula before the Torah was ever given. That is, in the video they suggest that the reason that Yaakov gave Ace of bread and soup is because the Gemara says that it's a suffix, what kind of a bracha you make on lentils. So therefore, to avoid the question of what kind of a bracha you make on lentils, therefore, Yaakov gave him bread, so you wouldn't have any more sveikis about what bracha to make on the lentils, it would all be included within the hamaytzi lechem and the aretz on the bread. That is, the assumption is that Yaakov kept all of Hilchas brachas, Remember, the Gemara tells us in Yuma, there are Midrashim which say the same, that in this week's parsha, at the end of the first Aliyah, the Pazik says the reason HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving all this to Yitzchak is because his dad, Avram, Ekev HaShashom Avram Mikoyli, Vayishma Mishmarti, Mitzvoyseichu, that Avram Avinu kept, kept Kala Tarakula. The Gemara in Yuma says that Kiem, Avram Avinu was Mekayim Kala Kula, everything, including Erev Tavshilin, including even rabbinic enactments. So if that's true, if Avram kept the Kala Kula in a literal sense, so maybe that's why that Yaakov would give bread. The problem, as the video points out, is that it's an unsustainable, it's an unsustainable uh, argument. Because if he kept Kol Torah Kula, presumably he kept the Mitzvah Darais of writing a Sefer Torah. So if he wrote a Sefer Torah, then how come Yitzchak wasn't sure who he should really bless? Or how come Yaakov cried when Yosef disappears? Unless you're saying that the entirety of the Torah becomes one big acting game, where everyone knows what they're supposed to do because of what the Torah says, so they do it, but really they know the truth, so they don't really do it. So... It's a very difficult, as I say, to sustain as a serious uh, a matter in a literal sense. Clearly, the Medrash is getting at something in a, in a deep sense, in a 
figurative sense, in a symbolic sense, but I would argue that they did not believe it in a literal sense. I think that they felt that the closeness of the Avais and the Imais, Takarish Baruchu, was such that their actions were so correct, they were so perfect, that it was akin to somebody's being a kind called Torakula. The call to cool and all the commandments that we have today is an expression of a life that is so perfect. How we have to do it in all of our different actions. But it's not, I don't believe, meant to, to be taken literally because if you say every mitzvah was filled in a literal sense, then of course history acting upon them was not acting upon them at all. They knew exactly how to act, in which case you're making the entire thing quite farcical and making everybody simply an actor. So that is the opinion uh, of Chazal, and that is the opinion of Rashi. When Rashi explains the Pasuk of Ekev HaShem Avram Mekayli, Rashi brings down these Chazals that Avram kept Kala Tarakula, even Erev Tavshilin, even the Rabbanans, etc. The Ramban doesn't like that. The Ramban says no. It's either referring to various elements of the Noahide laws, that is, Avram kept all the minutia, all the, all the little itty-bitty aspects of the seven Noachite laws, which he essentially was able to darshan into many, many, many layers of meaning. That's what Avram kept. That's what it's referring to when it talks about the various Torahs, etc. It's referring to the laws of the B'nai Noach. So that's one possibility. But the Ramban continues, and the Ramban says that it's un, it's incorrect, as a matter of Pshat, to say that the Avais kept the 613 mitzvahs. That is, that according to the Ramban, perhaps, he says, according to the way Chazal understand that they did do that, he said perhaps that's true, but only in Chutzlaretz. In other words, in Eretz Yisrael they kept it, but in Chutzlaretz they didn't. In Chutz Laaretz, Yaakov was able to marry two women who were sisters, or four women who were sisters, according to Chazal. Um, Yaakov was able to build Matzevis, right, Meshur Rabbeinu. So they were able to do things that would otherwise be inappropriate because of the fact that they did not keep the Torah. Remember what he said earlier in the parasha about the Pishnayim, that there was no Pishnayim for the Bechayra. So the, the Ramban seems to think as a matter of shot that there's no way that the 613 commandments were followed by the others. But with that being said, he tries and attempts to make a, a, a way through to explain why it would be that the others would be going against the laws of the Torah. And for that, he comes up with his distinction between Eretz Yisrael and Chutz As we know, the Ramban holds very, very strongly that keeping a mitzvah in the land of Israel is the Iker, to the point that he goes so far as to say that keeping the Torah in Chutzlaretz is really for practice. But this is another example when the Ramban is coming out to a situation where the Avais are not necessarily keeping what the Torah says. They're doing things that are against the Torah. And here, to be matzik the Avais, here to make the Avais look good, Right, one simply has to go against Chazal. Chazal say that the Avais did keep Kol Torah They were aware of the whole Torah. So if that's true, then how could Yaakov do what he did? How could you know Yitzchak uh, not do Pishnayim? On that, his basic answer, as a matter of pshat, is there was no Pishnayim. There was no law against uh, making uh, marrying two sisters and making them sirs to each other. There were no laws against doing matzavas. All that was okay. The Ramban is doing that as a matter of pshat because of the fact that he doesn't want to use the Chazal approach and then find that the Avish were lacking. So I think, therefore, he has to go away from Chazal to make it not a requirement on the Avish. And then the Avish come out looking okay. All right. So now I'd like to get to another look in the Parsha. This is about the digging of the wells. Yitzchak comes along 
And he's redigging all of dad's wells. Why? Because what happened to the wells that Avram dug? Sittimum pelishtim vayamalum afar. The Philistines had, had, had stopped them up. They had, um, you know, stuffed them in some way that they were no longer productive. <coughs> so Yitzchak comes along and he's redigging all of these wells. It says the Ramban, I don't understand, says the Ramban, what's the whole story about Yitzchak digging all these wells? In the Pashup Shad understanding of this Misa, there doesn't seem to be a point. Why do I have to know about Yitzchak trying to dig the wells that had already been dug by his dad? The light covered Gadol Yitzchak. There's no seeming uh, honor to Yitzchak by telling over this Misa about the wells. Him and his dad had done them sort of equally. So therefore, says the Ramban, I think what's going on here is that there is a, there is a, um, in the words of the Ramban, an Indian Nistar Besoichai. There's some hidden meaning that is being alluded to here in the story of the Be'ers. And for the Ramban, that story is that these wells refer to Mishkan Shiloi, it refers to the first bias, it refers to the second bias, and it refers to the third bias. According to the Ramban, the wells are not just wells. They're symbolic of the Bate Mikdash. They're symbolic of Mishkan Shilai. Now why is the Ramban doing this? Why is he taking what is seemingly a story about wells, and seemingly a story about how Yitzchak is getting beaten down by the Pelishtim each time he tries to make himself uh, a well, he gets pushed out, he gets pushed down. I think the Ramban is suggesting that as a matter of Pshat, it does not seem like a very good look for Yitzchak. He's trying to get, you know, a well. He's trying to make himself uh, a well that he could be sustained from. And he's getting stopped. He's getting pushed back. Avram was a big warrior. Avram was a very successful Balabas, he was able to get on well. He was able to go attack, you know, the armies uh, of the four kings. He's a pretty, he's a pretty powerful chieftain. He has confidence with folks. He has treaties. He has the Bali Brisav Ram. He has various folks that pledge allegiance to him. He has the Nevesh Hashem He's a real Bar Hachi. But when it comes to Yitzchak, you know, he's trying to merely refresh what his dad has done, and he's not doing that very, very successfully. He's doing that, actually, in a pretty weak way. So says the Ramban, so says the Ramban, that would be correct as a matter of pshat. Therefore, says the Ramban, I don't like that, because what would be the point of telling me all this? In other words, it sounds like from the purpose of the perspective of the Ramban, the others are meant to be on a pedestal. Yitzchak Avinu is meant to be on a pedestal. He's not like somebody who's a regular guy like us. He's one of the Avais. So why would the Torah be telling us a story about him that is on its face, not making us have a very good appreciation of him? It's not giving us a great look. Well, what would be the point and the purpose of saying such a story? Says the Ramban, therefore it's not in the Pshat that you're going to find the point of the story. In the Pshat, you will not find it. In the Pshat, Yitzchak comes out looking weak, looking aimless, looking like he's just simply trying to do what his father had already done before him, and he can't even preserve that. So instead, says the Ramban, what's going on here is, in his words, There's some hidden mystical meaning going on here. What's that? That hidden mystical meaning is, is that for... Um, for the Jewish people, for the future, we have a hint as to how that was going to unfold because everything Yitzchak was doing with the Be'er was really symbolizing what was going to happen with the temples and the tabernacle in the future. That is the approach of the Ramban. And he stresses at the end, he says, Gihaya Yitzchak Godel Ka'aviv. Yitzchak was just as great as his dad. 
Ufachar Amelech and the and the king Avimelech was fearful. Penyelachim by maybe Yitzchok would come fight him. Megarsh o Aisemiratzu when he, when Avimelech threw him out of the land. That is the way the Ramban is understanding as a matter of pshat. You cannot say not only that Yitzchok was poor. For the reasons that we said at the beginning of the class, he doesn't like the Ibn Ezra, and he, and he knocks away the Ibn Ezra's riots. But I think we could say now even stronger that not only was Yitzchak not poor, didn't have ups and downs and topsy-turvy in his financial life, but Yitzchak was just as much a success as Avram Avinu. Ah, you're not going to see that necessarily in the text. It's true. But that's what you have to understand, that Yitzchak was exactly as successful as Avram Avinu. And the fact, <coughs> and that fact being true, therefore means that we have to imbue the wealth story, which seems like Yitzchak is a bit of a, 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 bit of a, um, a weakling. He's not able to be so strong and, and counteract and countermand the Pelishtim. We have to suggest, says the Ramban, that the reason then for talking about all the wells is some deeper meaning. It's some mystical meaning which has connotations in the temples and the tabernacle. This is the approach of the Ramban. You should point out that um, I don't necessarily think it's a bad look. In other words, the Ramban is concerned that for Yitzchak to dig a well and have it be stuffed up by the Plishtim, it's a bad look for Yitzchak. What's the Tayelas? I say to you, why is it such a bad look? Why does it make Yitzchak look weak? After all, what happened by Avram Avinu? Right? After Yitzchak is born, after he throws away Hagar, the Torah tells us that that, that uh, they came to visit him, the Plishtim, and Avram was mechiach, Avimelech, about the be'er that was stolen by the Pelishtim. And what did Avimelech say? <laughs> I just found out about it today. Right? I only found out about it now. I didn't know about such a thing. But my point is, is why is it such a bad look that Yitzchak couldn't manage to sustain his uh, his his uh, wells that he was digging. The fact that he couldn't sustain it, the fact that he was being pushed from one to the other, Avram also wasn't able to sustain it. Maybe Yitzchak had more wells that he dug that were that were that were taken over. But is it such a is it such a stretch of the imagination to see that if it happened by Avram, it could happen by Yitzchak too? And it doesn't mean it's a bad look. So I'm not 100 percent convinced. That the approach of the Ramban and of imbuing it with the real, such deep mystical meaning about the Beis Hamikdash and the Mishkan Shira is really necessary. He's doing exactly what happened by his father. Lebanam, a favorite thing of the Ramban, is applicable here as well. All right, so now I'd like to get to um, my last two examples in the parsha. So, what happens when? His need, the Ramban's need, as we're trying to show, to make the Avais look good. Again, contrary to what he did in the beginning of Pashas Lech Lecha, with the two examples of Avram sinning, and then later on, the example with Hagar of Avram and Sarah sinning. What happens when when Yitzchak and Rivka are in a situation where each one is doing something that are contradictory to each other. Who then is the Ramban going to be Mastic? So the, the Pazik tells us that, that the, the Ramban is bothered by the, the question that's bothered many of them Mepharshim. How could it be that Yitzchak wants to go out and bless Esav? Doesn't he know that Rivka went and the doesn't she know that? Doesn't I'm sorry, doesn't he know that? Doesn't Yitzhak know that? Doesn't Yitzhak know that Yaakov purchased the Bukhara from Esav? Why is he bestowing or interested in bestowing this blessing upon Esav? 
How could he go against the word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that Rivka had? This question bothers the Rambam. Why? Because it's another example of a bad look of Yitzchak. How could you ignore what Hashem said to Rivka? So the Ramban here comes up with something very interesting. And he said, and it presages sort of the much more famous, perhaps, Nitziv. The Ramban says that Yitzchak didn't know about the prophecy that Rivka had received. He didn't know about it at all. And that's the only reason that he was using his logic as to who to give the brachas to. But had Yitzhak known, of course, that that Rivka went to go get a, a sort of prophetic inspiration and she got something, and Hashem said, this is going to be then, of course, Yitzhak would never have attempted to countermand or counteract the Kaddish Baruch Hu's expressed desire. No way, says the Rambam. It must be that Yitzhak didn't know. But by saying that Yitzchak didn't know, what is he effectively doing? He's effectively putting Rivka under the bus. In other words, the Ramban's understanding is he has a choice. He can either make Yitzchak look good or make Rivka look good. He can't do both. So Rivka, he may, of course, looks good because she's trying to keep her prophecy that she'd received. So therefore she's attempting to manipulate the situation to bring about a result that she thinks is predetermined, predestined, preordained, and required. But Yitzchak, what is he doing? Why would he be attempting to, to go against the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Sitzlach, right? That's what Meshur Rabbeinu told the Mapilam. V'hilei Sitzlach, don't go, I'll tell Lenu. You're not going to work. You can't go against what God wants. Therefore, the Ramban comes up with a, a, new, a new answer, which is that there was no communication between Rivka and Yitzchak. Rivka never told him about it. So if Rivka never told Yitzchak about it, then Yitzchak can't be blamed for wanting to bless Esav, because that was his natural proclivity, that was his natural desire, and the Seder. The Nitziv adds on over here, this is a very famous Nitziv, and it suggests a very beautiful psychological insight. He suggests that Rivka, since the moment that she had met Yitzchak, and you will recall in Pasha's Chayesara, that she falls off her camel, she falls off her donkey, she's not able to, um, to, um, to stand in his presence. There's a certain intimidation factor by the presence of Yitzchak. Suggests the Nitziv that that inability of Rivka to have normal, normal and normative communication with her husband existed throughout the duration and the entirety of their marriage together. Suggests the Nitziv that this is why Rivka never told him. She was too simply intimidated of him. She was never able to talk to him in a normal way. The Ramban doesn't say this. The Ramban has a bit of a different approach. The Ramban says that the reason that Rivka never told Yitzchak was because she had gone to seek advice from these holy people without her husband's blessing, without her husband's permission. So because she had done in Shalei to then go out and tell her husband, oh, and this is what they told me, and blah, 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 she didn't feel comfortable to do that. Because the knowledge that she had was not licit, it was illicit. It was done without the permission of her husband, who, says the Ramban, was presumably a greater prophet than anybody that she went to. And so, says the Ramban, the, 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 the Yitzchak was unawares of what Rivka's prophecy was, and Rivka hadn't told him in the words of the Ramban, simply because of the fact that she had received the information in a manner that was perhaps somewhat inappropriate. Um, the Ramban says that there was also a certain element of tzniyas here, not to share it. And then, as the years passed, it becomes too big of an elephant to then approach. And so therefore, we never come up in conversation again. And therefore, 
it's now required all this manipulation between the spouses. The the Ramban suggests, however, to make Rivka look good, there's a very interesting dynamic that appears a couple of times in this parsha. The parsha says when it's talking about Yitzchak and and uh, his two sons Yaakov and Esav, it says that Esav is the he's the older, and Yaakov is the And the question is, why does the Torah say this a couple of times? Like, we don't know, we already learned about it in the beginning of the Parsha. And the answer is, says the Ramban, is because we're coming to give a praise to Rivka. The more we say that Rivka was the mother of Yaakov and Esav, that Esav was the Gadol and Yaakov was the Katan, the more we appreciate her supreme self-sacrifice in order to bring about her vision that Yaakov should get the brachas, that is the approach to the Ramban, which, again, is not necessarily from, from the, the simplest way to understand that as a matter of shot. As a matter of shot, the Torah is telling us that Yaakov is the B'na Katan and Esav is the B'na Gadol to reiterate to you that what was done was done inappropriate. Despite the fact that Yaakov purchased the Bechor, he still considered the B'na Katan. That, what you might have suggested as a matter of shot, but not so, says the Ramban. The Ramban says when the Torah is pointing it out and repointing it out, it's to be mafleg, it's to give us praise for Rebecca's sacrifice. <coughs> um, maybe we'll, we'll conclude with one, more, one, more, one or two more examples. The, the Torah suggests, um, uh, the, the Ramban suggests, I'm sorry, that we we think that that Esav, right, is who's meant to be blessed by Yitzchak because he's going to bring in all this nice food, etc., for his father. Says the says the um, the Ramban, we think that that was going to be a blessing that, as he said it earlier, was being reached to a level of intimacy between Yitzchak and Esav. Because Yitzchak asked him to go do something, something with some danger associated with it, and Esav did it, and would provide this great game meat that he got in a situation where there was danger, and that would, says the Ramban, connect them, it would bond them in a way that would enable Yitzchak to give the requisite uh, bracha with the right amount of energy and, and, and heartfelt you know, kind of uh, um, seriousness. But if you look, there's always discrepancies in the Torah. And this is, you know, there are certain places in the Torah where you, you know, you should take out your exegetical tools, your exegetical toolkit, because that's a place to go mining, because there's going to be lots of latent meaning that's hidden in somewhere. And whenever the Torah has a situation where you have something being recapitulated, right, when it's summarized, and you see a distinction between the initial way it's said and the way it's repeated, those are areas where there's going to be a ton of stuff that you could find. If you look here, says the Ramban, points out one of these. He says, Rivka said to Yaakov, when she's quoting what Yitzchak said to Esav, she says that Dad said to Esav, Go make for me some delicacies that I love. So that I could bless you before I die. This is what this is what Yitzchak told Esav. But when Rivka repeats over to Yaakov, Rivka says to Yaakov that that Yitzchak said, I'm going to bless you before HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But Yitzchak never used the word of Hashem. So why did Rivka add it? You might think, again, it's a bad look on the part of Rivka. She's manipulating Yaakov into doing something that maybe Yaakov would not normally agree to do because she's making it that this is a godly thing. That Yitzchak is going to be blessing Esau before HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But maybe if he hadn't said it, if it was just some random blessing, maybe Yaakov wouldn't have agreed to be a pawn in this plan of Rivka's. Says the Ramban, no. Don't think of Rivka as looking at badly. 
He says, no. He says, rather, Ki it didn't mean that there was this was a prophecy, but she assumed about her husband that he would be accessing by eating Ruach HaKadosh. As we know, Ruach HaKadosh is only sure. We did this some weeks ago, and we talked about the difference in approach to prophecy in Parash Vayer between the Ramban and the Rambam. She assumed that once he was put into a good place, like Elisha with the Kachli Menagen, get me somebody to play music for me, get me into the right frame of mind, that then he would be in a moment where the Ruch HaKadosh would be sure on him, and he would be speaking with a divine or prophetic voice. As a result, Rivka is not lying when she says, this is what Yitzchak told Esav. Says the Ramban, she's simply channeling what he said, and expressing it in a further, uh, uh, with more depth, because that's what Yitzchak was attempting to convey to Esav. Get me the food, make me into this place where I'm going to feel connected to you, feel happy, be at ease and at peace, and then all of a sudden I'm going to have the Ruach Hashem, Mishar Ami. Says the Ramban, that's Rivka understood what he was saying, and that's why she said, The last example that I wanted to give for tonight is that it seems again in the parsha that that the, the, the voice of Esau and Yaakov are the same. In other words, what is that koel? The Rashbam understood that that koel is simply that they're twins. And twins often have the same exact voice. So the koel that we're talking about is not the way they sound in terms of their, their voice. Their voice is the same. It's how they talk that's different. If you look, the Torah makes it very clear that Esav talks in a much more strident fashion. Like it's like boom, boom, boom. It's very, um, it's uh, like a like a um, staccato. It's like ba boom, you know, ba boom. It's like it's 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 like bursts. It's clips. Whereas Yaakov is 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 much more modest and amiable and humble in the way he talks. So this distinction between the way of of Yitra, uh, of Yaakov and Esav talking is in how says the Rashbam y- Yitzchak could get confused because they sound the same, and the way he thinks that it's Yaakov is because of the manner of his speech, not the sound of his speech. So this is the. This is the approach of the Rashbam. The Ramban acknowledges that twins could have the same kind of a voice, but he doesn't seem to be that comfortable with it. I wonder if it's because of the fact that he didn't like it, even though as a matter of science and he was a doctor, as a matter of shot, I think many, especially identical twins, are often very, very similar in many ways. But the Ramban seems to prefer the idea that Yitzchak was fooled into thinking that Yaakov is really Esav because of the fact that Yaakov imitated imitated Esav's voice. He was sort of like a voice actor. He took on the voice of Esav and he t- attempted to sound like him. Not a way, again, in the manner that he spoke, but in the, the sound that he had. And says the Ramban that that this is something that no, that some people know how to do. He says, There are some people, they know how to do falsettos and voiceovers. They, they know how to do it. And that's how he was, um, that's how he was fooled into thinking that it actually might very well be Esau. Of course, he had some suspicions. But I wonder again, if on this situation, he's bothered. How could it be that Yitzchak doesn't know the difference between the sons? The whole idea of somebody who's blind, the Gemara says, is, is mutter to be with his wife is because it's fiaskal. You know, the, the person who's blind, their senses, their ears, their hearing, their, their smelling, it becomes that much more heightened to make up for the loss of sight. So how could he get so confused? Again, doesn't make Gitzel look very good. He doesn't know how his son sounds. The answer then must be 
On the one hand, you could say that they're twins. They sound the same. But the Ramban doesn't like that. He's, yes, he agrees that it's a possibility, but it sounds like that's not really where his heart is lying. What he more prefers is to say that Yaakov was a good actor. And I think that that's why. is because of the fact that for the Ramban to say that Yitzchak had two sons, one a Rasha, one a Tzadik, and they sound alike, that their voices are the same, that I don't think was so matim for him. So therefore he goes against what would seem to be the natural, normal, easiest shot understanding to suggest that Yaakov was really a good actor. He was really a very good actor who was able to manipulate his voice to sound like Esau. So perhaps that's another example where he's avoiding what would seem to be pshat in order, in order to make it, um, in order to make it more matim, to uh, to not have a Russia and a tzaddik sounding the same. So with that, we'll conclude. Have a good Shabbos.